Welcome to our podcast, What I Didn't Learn at Harvard, where super connectors who will be talking about how to network smartly in a post-pandemic world. I'm your host and moderator, Rajiv Jadav. I'm a reputation management strategist and social impact activist. My co-host is Victor Lee. He's our Harvard alum, and he will be guiding us through all the things he's learned about networking since he graduated. In the episodes that follow, you'll be hearing from experts who do networking well. Welcome to another exciting episode of Things I Didn't Learn at Harvard. Today, we are joined by a very, very special guest. We are joined by the world-renowned Michael Deem. So here's a small introduction on Michael Deem as I'm reading off his LinkedIn profile. Uh, This is what uh, Michael says about himself. Michael Deem is an experienced senior professional who has operated in senior management, board, and advisor capabilities, uh, capacities with companies ranging from startup to rapid growth to large multinational companies. Currently, general partner at Smart Health Catalyzer and CEO of a startup, formerly entrepreneur in residence at Kosla Ventures. His intellectual bandwidth has benefited companies from a wide cross-section of industries that include life sciences, artificial intelligence, AI, genomics, data science, biotechnology, energy, and cancer research. Uh, As far as Michael's LinkedIn profile, there are a bunch of alphabets connected to him uh, as well as his name, but this is uh, an abbreviated version. Founder at Certus LLC, CEO, CTO, independent director, operating partner, private equity, venture capital, audit, life science, AI, biotechnology, NACD, uh, and SAFE. And and Michael is one of our few guests that actually did go to Harvard. So I think that would be a a great great conversation. So, well, Michael, first of all, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Rajiv and Victor. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, uh, Michael... So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in uh, from what little I read on your LinkedIn profile. Well, the question is, well, what does it all mean? Do you ever sleep? How do you manage it all? Well, I've had a great life. I've had a number of amazing experiences. I grew up on the East Coast. I went to school on the West Coast. I went back to the East Coast to go to Harvard for a little bit. I worked with a small company there called Curigen. I was a professor at UCLA for a while. I was a professor at Rice University for about 25 years. I was chair of the bioengineering department there. I started the graduate program in systems synthetic and physical biology. And then maybe two or three years ago, I decided I want to go back to the private world. So I started as a venture capitalist. I was an entrepreneur in residence with Coastal Ventures. And there I really learned how venture capital worked. I learned how to identify portfolio companies, how to mentor companies, how to fund companies. And that's something now I do as a general partner with Smart Health Catalyzer. 
Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about Smart Health Catalyzer, Michael? What is the, what is their focus, and how 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 is that you know the the right place for you, a, a good fit for you? And I oh. and you're also a CEO of a company as well. So I'd love to kind of know how those you know you don't you don't see too many people I don't think wearing both the VC hat and the and the CEO hat. Smart Health Catalyzer, our mission there is to bring the untapped potential of the Midwest to the rest of the world. The Midwest receives about 25% of the NIH funding in the United States, but they only receive about 5% of the venture capital investments. So a lot of really great ideas, a lot of really great professors and students there in the Midwest, and it's untapped. So there's a good investment potential there, many new ideas, many things that will change the world. And our goal is to identify some of those and help support them and help them invent the future and get their technology to the public. That's interesting. So you have both a industry focus, healthcare, and but also a geographic focus. Is, is is Smart Health, is it based in the Midwest? We're based in Chicago and we're focused on therapeutics and also on devices. So we just ran a best of Midwest competition. We we reviewed about 53 companies. And from those, we got it down to the top 10 and we had those professors present the 10 venture capitalists. So we started net this networking process between the professors and the companies and the investors just a couple of months ago. It was really very exciting to see everybody's enthusiasm about some of the potential from the Midwest. That's oh. amazing. One of the things, sorry, I just came across is a very close friend of mine who actually is in healthcare. She has an MBA and an MPH as a classmate of mine at Columbia. Her son just graduated from Case Western with a degree in bio, uh, biomedical engineering. Mm -hmm. And he decided to stay in Cleveland because he thought there were so many opportunities there uh, in his it's, field. It's a really great school for bioengineering. I think it's, uh, it's definitely in the top 20, maybe the top 10. Traditionally been very strong. Indianapolis is quite strong. Chicago is quite strong. Cleveland's quite strong. There's really a lot of potential. There's a lot of great research that's going on in the Midwest. That's great. As, as a guy who grew up in Minnesota, you know, that's nice to hear. So, no. Sorry, Rajiv, go ahead. Yeah, that's okay, Victor. I mean, we're all very excited to speak to Michael and we're all brimming with questions. <laughs> uh, Michael, so I, first of all, thank you for sharing uh, the all the information that you shared as far as your background, where, where you've spent significant time, where you still continue to spend significant time, your focus. You mentioned something interesting about the pitch competition that you recently were at where you spoke to or were privy to uh, 10 or 15 uh, startup founders who were either professors and or academics about their invention. So, you know, from the perspective of our podcast, which is largely to do with communication and relationship building, I wanted to ask you, you know, especially since, you know, you're a founder, I guess you're on both sides of the table to a degree, you're both a founder and you're a VC and you're in PE and, you know, you play in in very uh, interesting parts of, let's say, the large continuum. So my question for you, Michael, is when it comes to a competition like that, and it's all about communication, it's all about your presence, it's all about the vibe that you want to give out, is either, can you comment on what you've observed as people doing well, and also what they ought to do, and perhaps what they ought not to do, since you've well, you've been on both sides of that uh, of that space, right? It's interesting because I was a professor for 25 years, so I understand how the principal investigators are thinking. 
Uh, I'm now an investor, so I'm on the other side looking at investable ideas. And what we're really trying to help the faculty, what we're truly trying to help the professors do is distill down maybe 25 years worth of research into a four minute or a 10 minute or 20 minute presentation. And a lot of times it's very difficult for them to, to do that because they have so many things that they've discovered over their career. And we want them to focus on um, the, the current idea that they're excited about that you know, we think will change the world. And we want them to describe that in a way that the investors will appreciate the potential. So we're looking for billion dollar ideas. We're looking for ideas that will really change the world for the better. And we want them to distill that down into a slide deck with maybe 10 slides. Wow, and, and that's not always easily done, right? It's, it's a different perspective for professors because professors like to talk for 60 minutes about all of the details in which they're an expert. And we really want to get them down to something very efficient, talking about the market, talking about the team, talking about the technology, talking about the protection that they might have, for example, from patents for their technology, and then really talking about the potential for how their technology is inventing the future, how it's helping people, how it's going to make the world a better place on a very big scale. So if you're looking at billion dollar ideas, obviously you're tackling big problems, right? And so do you have any particular focus? Is it disease? Is it cancer? Is it, you know, uh, you know, longevity? Are there any trends that you're seeing or interested in? All of those are great topics. So longevity is quite popular right now. Cancer is a big problem. You know, cancer has been really difficult to treat in the U.S. We can treat childhood cancers, but adult cancers are pretty difficult. I would say diseases of the old age are something that are quite interesting. Uh, neurological diseases are quite interesting and could be a combination of three of those four ideas, right? It could be something like Alzheimer's disease. So we're looking at diseases that affect a large number of Americans, you know, millions of Americans, and we're looking at how we can provide some help for treatment of these diseases. And then at the same time, in a parallel activity, we're also interested in devices. So um, how a mechanical engineer has been really clever and come up with new devices for treating different ail ailments of Americans. Sure. No, well, I think that's great. Sorry, I mean, you know, you're talking to a guy here. I'm standing here you know, while we're recording this episode. You know, I have two artificial hips. And what? So, right. Yes. Really? I, I didn't know I, this. I had, I had them both replaced about four or five years ago. And the thought was, I don't know how recently they were invented, Michael, but I don't know what people did before that, right? I guess I would just be on crutches, in pain, hobbling for the rest of my life. Right. So that's a pretty good example because there's so many things that goes into the design of that artificial hip. You want the hip to be, you want the replacement hip to be strong, right? But it can't be too strong. If it's too strong, then it'll degrade the bone around it. So it has to have a similar uh, sort of strength to the bone. You want your immune system to not really recognize it too much because you don't want your immune system to start attacking that artificial hip. So, uh, but you also want it to be accepted and integrated into the rest of the tissue in your body. So there's a lot of bioengineering that goes on at the mechanical level, at the chemical level, at the biological signaling level um, to make that happen. And then just the surgery itself, right? So how do you train the orthopedic surgeons to extract the old um, the ball in the joint and then put in this new one. That, and then also the physical therapy. How do you train you know, your, your muscles to adapt and to help your body accept this new replacement? Oh yeah, I, and maybe I shouldn't admit this. I haven't seen my ortho in like three years. 
because I have not, nothing to say. He'd say, how you doing? I would say, I'm great. And that would be the end. I am, And I am in the best shape I've been in my entire life. It's just wow. astounding. Yeah. That's, that's really what we want to do in bioengineering. We want to alleviate suffering from disease and ailment. And, you know, as we all survive longer and we all get older, there are several diseases and several ailments that are going to pop up. And we sort of like to help treat those. What no, are you seeing on the horizon? Anything new and interesting that you'd say, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that five years ago? I think diseases of the old age. So, you know, can we have vaccines for things like Alzheimer's or can we have vaccines for things like dementia? Or, you know, maybe can we have computer games for kids who have ADHD? Can we have games that will then sort of maybe occupy some of their attention and retrain uh, their mind so that they don't have so much difficulty learning in school? Wow, it's fabulous. Uh, Michael, so you mentioned a bunch of really interesting, compelling, juicy <laughs> tidbits here. I kind of heard a rumor that you've got a significant number of patents in the space of uh, dealing with uh, either creating vaccines for diseases, uh, highly communicable, uh, contagious type diseases, uh, as well as I heard a rumor, and again, you know, uh, please obviously keep me honest here, Michael, but I heard a rumor that uh, was that you had a significant contrib contribution to the COVID-19 vaccine uh, delivery mechanism. Can you maybe just, whatever you can, I don't know if you sign NDAs, but whatever you can share, we'd love to hear. So I've been working in vaccines for probably 20, 25 years now. I first started with the influenza vaccine. One issue with influenza is we get the vaccine in the Northern Hemisphere in around October, and that vaccine is designed in January or February. So there's, you know, six to eight months between when the vaccine's designed and when we get it. So there can be a difference between the vaccine and the virus that we actually see. And the more the virus is different from the vaccine, the less effective the vaccine. So one thing we've worked on is predicting how the effectiveness of the vaccine decreases as the virus evolves away from the vaccine. And this approach now is used on six of the, all six of the inhabited continents of the world. It's not used in, in Antarctica, but it's used everywhere else. This is relevant for COVID. You know, we've heard about the new vaccines. We need to redesign the COVID vaccines. I think eventually it'll be just like influenza where we have an annual COVID vaccine. Interesting. Wow. And as far as, Michael, can you share either past patents, current patents, and or forthcoming patents in this space? And like I said, again, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing, because I know, you know, when it comes to patents, it's <laughs> highly, uh, it's one of those like slightly, uh, it's those spaces where either you'd love to talk about it, or you just absolutely cannot talk about it until it's act actually published. And then you can crow, uh, paint the town red with it. But like I said, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Another disease we've worked on for a while is dengue fever. So there are four serotypes of dengue fever. Sometimes we say there are four dengue viruses. And if you're vaccinated against one, you're actually more susceptible to severe dengue from the other three. Oh, so yeah. We, wow. we want to vaccinate people against all four dengue viruses because, you know, in many in many places of the world, all four dengue viruses are present. There are about 120 countries in which uh, dengue virus is endemic. Also, people travel between different regions. So people are likely to see more than one dengue virus. So if you can't uh, you know, vaccinate just against one virus, then we want to vaccinate against all four. 
but something else happens. So the immune system tends to recognize some of the viruses more than others. So you might have good protection against two of the viruses, but not so good protection against the other two dengue viruses. And this is not just an academic question. There, there are only a couple licensed dengue vaccines right now, and they're not effective against all four serotypes. One of them's even been withdrawn because of this issue. So we thought about this and we realized that the immune system, it's creating T cells against the virus in the lymph nodes and humans have hundreds of lymph nodes. So what if we vaccinated against the different serotypes in different places on the body? Maybe, you know, dengue virus one in left arm, two in right arm, three in left leg, four in right leg. <laughs> and then the body would, would in different lymph nodes, create T cells against those different dengue viruses. And this seems to work pretty well. So we showed this was an effective strategy and we have a patent on dengue vaccination by this multi-site approach. And then we have a more general patent on really all infectious disease vaccination by this multi-site approach. So in your work, Michael, have you gotten involved in sort of the social issues regarding vaccines, which obviously have become, you know, were controversial prior to COVID, have probably become more so. And in terms of, you know, obviously the vaccine is only effective once it's delivered. And in terms of what are the, I don't, I hate to call it social engineering, but the approaches to take, you know, which is of, of getting people vaccinated. You know, obviously one approach is to say, Michael, you need to do this. You have to do this, right? In a coercive approach, there can be more trying to get people's cooperation, trying to get them to appeal to their better nature, trying to say it's good for their community. I mean, have, have you been involved in those sorts of issues as well? Because that's, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? In getting people to cooperate and comply. There's a concept called herd immunity. And the idea is once enough people get vaccinated against, let's say COVID, then the transmission of COVID in the whole population will be reduced a lot. Right. So not everybody has to be vaccinated. Maybe 70% of the people have to be vaccinated. And then that will sort of lead to the die out of COVID. Now, COVID's interesting because it travels between different countries, right? People get on planes and on boats and they travel between countries. So it's not just in the U.S. that we need 70% of the people to be vaccinated, but sort of in the whole world. Influenza is similar. And influenza is also interesting because it really comes from birds. So we tend to get influenza from pigs and pigs tend to get it from birds. So to eradicate influenza, we'd have to vaccinate all the pigs and maybe all the birds as well. So it's kind of difficult to achieve herd immunity for some of these diseases. Um, I tend to work more on the, the science and the engineering side. So, you know, I, I want to be honest about the vaccine is not always a perfect match and the vaccine rarely has 100% effectiveness. For COVID, the vaccine is actually really effective. For influenza, much less so. Um, but we should just accept that and we should admit that and then work on methods to improve the effectiveness of the vaccine or at least to estimate the effectiveness. So as as the virus changes, when do we need to redesign the vaccine, for example? So the, the questions that we could answer. Sure. So the annual, you know, people talk about, you know, moving to an annual COVID virus. Is that because the, the virus mutates or is that because the immunity wanes over time? For influenza, it's because the virus mutates. So right. we retain protection, uh, the antibody type of protection that is relevant for um, influenza, we retain that for 25 or 30 years. And the vaccine, it contains two strains against um, influenza. Let's see, it, it contains an influenza H1 strain, it contains an H3 strain, it contains two strains against influenza B. 
And usually at least one of those strains evolves enough that we need to redesign the influenza vaccine. So typically the influenza vaccine is changing on a yearly basis. And it's also, you know, we tend to get it in the winter. So we're six months out of phase with the winter in the Southern hemisphere. So the influenza vaccine is redesigned for the Northern hemisphere and for the Southern hemisphere. So there's a lot of work that goes on at the international level to choose what the vaccine will be for the next year. So Michael, I, I got to ask, and again, I don't know if this is like too technical a question, but you know, uh, kind of going back to what Victor said with, uh, you know, when COVID happened and it kind of took us all by surprise and there were like in the, in the vaccines, there were kind of broadly two approaches. One approach was the two, the two jabs from Pfizer or, you know, other companies that did that. And then there was another one that was a one jab, which was, I think, uh, Moderna, I think, if I'm remembering the name correctly, is there, you know, since your since this is your area of expertise and you know authority, Michael, I kind of wanted to ask you, is there a certain rationale to a single jab approach versus a two jab approach? And is there a benefit to either? So the COVID vaccine was pretty interesting. Um, with one vaccine, the, the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine is about, I think around 85% effective. And with two vaccines, it's around 95% effective. So it's actually a really effective vaccine. It's, uh, there are also different approaches for the vaccine itself. So the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, those are mRNA vaccines. So those vaccines are introducing genetic material into the cells and then the cells are making the proteins and the proteins are stimulating the immune system. There were some other approaches to introduce the genetic material using what's called AAV. That was more uh, like uh, the vaccine that was used in Russia and then China. And then there were some vaccines directly introducing the protein material. Most vaccines do that. But for COVID, this new approach of the mRNA vaccine, that seemed to be most effective. And people have been working on that for 15 or so years for cancer vaccines. And they weren't sure it would work. And COVID was really the first demonstration that mRNA vaccines can be so effective. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Who would see who would know this? And of course, we're hearing from an expert. So you can definitely uh, take his word because this is what a large part of what you've done has has been focused on this, right? Since you said you've been doing this for 20 plus years. Been working on vaccines for a long time, and it was really satisfying to see how quickly the scientific and then the manufacturing and pharmaceutical industries responded to the COVID outbreak. We had a vaccine very quickly, probably six months or eight months after COVID was first discovered. We have sort of first steps at the vaccine. That's a pretty amazing response. Awesome. Uh, Michael, I, I, I figured um, I'd maybe change gears slightly. I mean, we have spent a lot of time talking about vaccines, which of course is super interesting. It's really riveting, I got to say. Uh, but uh, Michael, you wear so many other hats and I hear that you're also really big into energy consulting uh, through one of your other companies. Is that something that you'd like to talk about? Again, you know, I am sensitive to the fact of how rapid and dynamic and fluid the spaces and the various advancements that are happening in the space. And, you know, and sure there are, you know, you're working in the space of patents and uh, IP and stuff like that. So obviously if you're not able to speak on certain things, I completely understand, but uh, whatever, whatever you can share in your, in, in the, this field, uh, we'd love to hear. 
So I've been working on zeolites, which are crystals used in the energy industry for now about 35 years, even longer than the vaccines. Zeolites are really beautiful crystals. They have large pores and channels. They're used in catalysis. So they're used in industries like oil refining that are trillion dollar a year industries. Uh, they power a lot of the energy materials that you know, lead to our quality of life. And one of the issues with zeolites is they can be difficult to make. So we might want to make a new zeolite or we might have a zeolite that we just can't make it perfectly enough. It has defects or faults. And I work on designing molecules that fill the holes and the channels of the zeolites so that we can then synthesize the zeolites. And we just published a chapter in a book about design of these structure directing agents. The whole book was about artificial intelligent methods for understanding and synthesizing zeolites. We also published the concluding chapter in that book. So it's a really interesting area of materials that power a lot of our society's goals. Wait, it's, so it's, it's like you feel that nobody, I have to confess, I don't think people are very familiar with, but it's obviously critical to the functioning of the economy and then interesting application of AI, again, in a way that's kind of hidden from public view, but hopefully we'll all, we'll all see the results. I live in Houston, so when I look out my window, I can see two of the largest refineries in the United States. And when I go down to Galveston, I see another two. I think we have three or four of these 600,000 uh, barrel a day refineries. And zeolites are one of the most important catalysts that allow those refineries to do that refining of the oil into gasoline. Wow, that's amazing. So so these, again, Michael, uh, so you're saying zeolites are crystals, so they, they're like crystalline elements? That... Crystals with these holes in them, and the way to sort of think about it is you pour the, the oil onto the zeolite and out comes the gasoline. Uh, it's more complicated than that. There's this big refinery that you know, gives all the technology to make that happen, but essentially a zeolite allows you to convert the oil into gasoline. So, because I know that, again, I'm obviously gasoline is not my field of expertise, but I mean, what little I remember from school is that you have crude oil and then through the refining process, crude oil produces a bunch of products, plastics being one of them, but then you also have kerosene, you have rocket fuel, you have uh, gasoline that goes into cars, you you have diesel, you have like a bunch of these uh uh, the, I guess, varying degrees of purity of crude oil. So does the zeolites contribute to the creation of all these products? Yeah, so different zeolites produce different products. So if the refinery wants to make more gasoline or more jet fuel or more diesel fuel, they can adjust many of the conditions of the refinery. They can also adjust the zeolites that are used. And then also as the crude oil itself becomes different. So the crude oil from different countries can be more or less thick or more or less sour. And that also affects the refining process. So the, the zeolites are one of the materials that helps, helps convert this wide diverse range of crude oil coming in into the products that are most valuable to the market and to the society at that time. And I assume these are used worldwide, right? These are used worldwide. And actually the largest use I think is in uh, powdered laundry detergent. So about 25% of your powdered laundry detergent is zeolite A. It softens the water so that the rest of the detergent works better. Huh. Wow. Oh, wow. Victor, we're getting schooled in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way since my high school chemistry class. 
<laughs> seems that way. Seems that way. Uh, uh, so, uh, and engineering my, are important for society. I know, I know. Uh, Michael, so I got to ask. So I, I know that uh, like energy consulting is something is one of your many focus areas. And yes, you did mention about zeolites, which I got to say is fascinating. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to flatter you. It really is fascinating. It's amazing that these per se little things have such a huge impact on, like you said, our way of life. Uh, I got to ask you, Michael, uh, when it comes to energy consulting, is your focus, your either your scientific work, your advisory work, is it focused on zeolites or is there any other side of the energy game that you're either interested in or are focused on? Sure. So one of the areas I was responsible for at Coastal Ventures was sustainability. And, you know, as, as we transition to sort of the new economy and new ways of uh, living, we're slowly getting away from the older types of energy production. We're getting away from the fossil fuels. We're moving more towards a sustainable future. We're still going to need energy as a society. You know, how can we structure our economy so that we're a little bit more sustainable in our production and use of energy? And there are a lot of really clever ideas out there in sustainability. And we see pretty much all of them at COSO. So that's, that's something that I continue to work on in my consulting as well. So I guess, uh, Michael, I guess let me ask you a, a more, let's say, tactical question, you know, for, our, for the benefit of our audience. So let's say we have a billionaire that's listening to us and he or she is thinking of their next idea, which they think is a sure thing that happens to be in the energy space or the, the energy innovation space. If that person were listening and they were looking for a perspective or a point of view from an expert, is there some nugget or germ of an idea that you could share right now to give them a clue as to what direction to head in? Is it, uh, is it solar? Is it wind? Is it water? Is it alternative, uh, you know, energy production? Is it methane? Is it like, there's just so many different things out there, each with its own level of, I guess, energy production and energy storage. Uh, do you either have a preference uh, between many of them? And also, if you do, why? One thing people are thinking about now is all of the energy that's used in shipping. Goods are manufactured in one part of the world and then shipped to another part of the world. Shipping is very efficient. It also uses a lot of energy. Right now, most shipping uses diesel fuel. That probably will be phased out in the next 10 years or so, and we'll move to a new fuel. So there's a discussion going on right now. Will that new fuel be something like ammonia, or will the new fuel be something like hydrogen? And that's, uh, you know, people are not sure yet. That's an interesting area for investment. Hmm. So, Michael, it sounds like to sort of sum up your, your two areas of focus are number one on the healthcare side, making sure we live longer and, and uh, in a more healthy way, which is always good. And the second is that as we live longer, we have a, a better li lifestyle, quality of life in terms of sustainability yep. and you know all the things that we've kind of gotten accustomed to. So that's great. So, you know, so I'm, I'm a big fan of both of those. Within healthcare, you know, we want to cure disease. We want to ameliorate suffering. We also want to make our quality of life better as we age. You know, we want to help with some of the, what we call diseases of old age. And really our society is powered by energy. So you know, we need to find more sustainable ways of achieving that power for our society. And we will. Okay. Oh, good luck. Well, we're, Michael, we're, we're counting on you. <laughs> 
Rajiv and I are not old, but before we get there, we're, we're counting on you to, to figure it out for us. So that'd be great. Yeah, uh, Michael, I got to say, this has been a terrific conversation. Time just flew by and we didn't even realize it. And I think there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think perhaps uh, your calendar permitting, we'd love to have a second conversation with you, maybe talk about the parts that we weren't able to cover in this conversation, like communication and relationships and communication vis-a-vis -vis the startup world and founding and capital raising and you know things like that. And and uh, maybe that's something that we can have in another conversation, you know, obviously, if you'd be amenable to it. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Rajiv and Victor, and I'd love to be back on your podcast. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so Perfect. much. All right. Thanks, Michael. Great meeting you. Nice to meet you and your, your listeners. Please send us your comments and questions about networking by posting them in the comments below. Or for a quick response, email us at dintlearn at harvard at gmail.com. Please like, comment, and subscribe. It means the world to us. Try today's networking nugget and tell us whether it worked or if you hate it or if you'd like us to brainstorm a solution for you, no charge. That's our way of saying thank you for supporting us by listening and sharing our content with people you care about. That's all this week from Rajiv and Victor. Thanks for listening to Things I Didn't Learn at Harvard. Hopefully you learned something here today.